Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and you know that because I tell you every week, but every week is somebody new's first time episode, and I want them to know that they can get Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. Don't worry about me. I'll get mine when you get hooked on the series and you come back with money for books two and three. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as The Book of David. You can get The Book of David Chapter 1 for free as well. For more information on all of that, plus interviews with hundreds of uh, literary, thousands of literary agents, authors, publishing professionals, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. It will make every dream you've ever had come true. My goodness, that is enough intro. There's two of you tonight. We've got no time to spare. We've We've got to go with it, and I'm going to um, choose the order of the the order of the, of the books in the series that have come out. I feel that's the only fair way to do that. Uh, so, Michelle, I'm going to ask you first to give us kind of an overview of your background because I never summarize anybody else's background or anyone else's book. Uh, so, if you would go first, and then Samantha, we want to hear about your background as well. Oh well, thank you for having us here, Rob. Um, my name is Michelle Jabez Corpra. Um, I am here because I'm the author of the first book in the American Horsetail series called The Dust Bowl. Uh, my background is in publishing. Uh, I worked for uh, HarperCollins uh, Green Willow for about five years in New York. And then after that, and since then, I've been working for a, uh, a uh, book packager uh, called Working Partners, making uh, all kinds of stories for uh, young readers. But um, I am also a, a ghostwriter, so I've written uh, five novels in a long-running middle grade series that I cannot tell you about or else I'll have to kill you, so sorry. Um, but um, most recently, other than uh, The Dust Bowl, uh, this year I also uh, wrote a book called uh, The Fog of War, which is uh, the eighth novel in the True Adventures series from Pushkin. And The Fog of War is about uh, the amazing Martha Gellhorn, who was a war correspondent uh, in World War II. Uh, so that's me. The books that you've ghostwritten, of course, are the Banneker Bones books. Now the truth can finally <laughs> be revealed. <laughs> uh, and Samantha, uh, over to you. What, uh, what does the esteemed audience need to know about you before we get going here? Um, so, um, I'm like Michelle, thank you so much for, for having us. I'm, I'm so excited to be doing this. And um, so my name is Samantha M. Clark, and I'm the author of three books now, which is pretty amazing and surreal because I honestly never thought that one of my books would get published, but now I have three out. Um, the Boy, the Boat and the Beast, which was my debut that came out in 2018 with Simon & Schuster. And then this year, I had two books that came out, um, Arrow, which was also um, out by Simon & Schuster, about a boy, an 11-year-old boy who, um, with a limb difference, who is the only human who's been living in a magically hidden rainforest. And then the um, outside arid dry world kind of infiltrates it, and Arrow has to save his home. And then finally, um, which came out a week later, the second book in the American Horsetail series, Hollywood, which I'm so excited about. It's the first book that I've written that is part of a series. And um, 
and and just it's it's been a very different experience so so much fun and it's been so great sharing this with michelle as well just just fantastic i'm really excited about it you have two books come out a, a week apart is that a curse or a blessing because you get all the promotion all at once or is it just too much and it would be better to, to give them some space it was it was surreal it wasn't it wasn't really planned that way um originally the American Horse Tales book was supposed to come out before the Arrow has um, the Boy, the Boat and the Beast came out June 22nd and Simon and Schuster set up Arrow to come out at pretty much the same date, although in a different year. So three years later, it was set for June. Uh, I mean, yes, for June 26th. So then we heard that the American Horse Tales books were had been delayed and were coming out and had been moved from. I think they're originally in May and they'd been moved to June. And 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 then I found out that, that the date was going to be um, you know, literally a week after the arrow, you know, arrow was coming out. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know, I don't know, you know, how this is gonna work, but it's gonna be busy and it's gonna be fun. Um and it was, and it was a lot of fun. It I, I kind of felt bad for my family because I was constantly like Here's all of this book news. And then I am, I have a chapter book series that's coming out that's launching next year. So right after these two books came out, then that was announced. And so I, I actually posted it on Facebook and said, OK, I promise you guys, this is the last time you'll hear about book stuff from me for just a little while. But here's some more good news. So it felt like there was all this good news kind of all happening at the same time. But it's all good news and fun and it's 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 been amazing like i did one event where i was able to sign both arrow and hollywood and that's it's it's been you know a lot of fun well i'm sure in a, in a long and, and and successful writing career there's never going to be a couple of week stretches where it's just bad news <laughs> yeah hopefully hopefully that's true hopefully <laughs> and when you've got pub when you you know when you've got books coming out from different um, publishing houses, you don't have control over when they're going to come out. But my hope is that, um, you know, when when I'm promoting Arrow, that the, the readers who are discovering Arrow, when they if they like Arrow, they will go to to you know my website and then they'll see, learn about the American Horse Tales book through that and find both Michelle's and my American Horse Tales book at the same time. So my hope is that the two books can you know, kind of find new readers, you know, each by themselves and, and bring new readers to to each other. I do believe that that happens. I hope yeah. I'm right. We could be making that happen for a esteemed audience right now. Where should they go to visit your website? It's SamanthaMClark.com with the M because there's a lot of Samantha Clarks. So I had to put in the M so that I stood out a little bit more. So SamanthaMClark.com. And Michelle, where uh, can folks visit to find out more about you? Uh, uh, very similar, uh, michellejcorpora.com. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you've got the, the two books coming out this year. Uh, are either of you in a position where you can announce your future projects? Samantha, are you able to tell us the title of the chapter book series that's coming? Yes, it's called Gemstone Dragons. It's coming out with Bloomsbury. The first two books are coming out um i'm not sure the date yet or the month i i know that it's winter next year and they're being 
uh, they're being illustrated by Janelle Anderson, who is absolutely brilliant. I've seen early sketches and she's amazing. And uh, the first two books, the, the, the Gemstone Dragon series is about these adorable dragons who have um, a gemstone and a superpower that kind of goes with their gemstone. And they live in Gemstone Valley with other magical creatures like unicorns and gnomes and goblins and fairies. And the dragons, you know, protect all of the magical creatures in Gemstone Valley. They live in Sparkle Cave in the middle of Mineral Mountain. And they have lots of adventures always, you know, where their, their friends, you know, their friendship usually saves them in the end. And the first two books, uh, Opal is, which funnily enough is my birthstone, Opal is going to be the, um, sh she's the, the, the lead of the book one, which is Opal's, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, book two is Ruby, Ruby's Fiery Mishap. Oh, Opal's Time to Shine is, is book one, and then Ruby's Fiery Mishap is book two. So I'm very excited about them. They're fun. They've been fun to work on. Congratulations. That is uh, tremendous. Thank you. Uh, and so that, that begs the question. We're going to talk uh, quite a bit about Hollywood because I'm, I'm curious how it would be to, to write a book with no dragons, no no <laughs> fantasy elements of, of, of any kind of, that, that puts you a little bit out of your element. But if you're writing a book about uh, superpowers, I make it my business to ask if you could only have one superpower, what superpower would you want? I've always kind of said that I'd love to have invisibility, but after writing Opal's book, I'm not really sure if I'd want that anymore. Like I used to, you know, as, as a kid, friends and I, we used to ask each other that same question all the time. And invisibility was hands down my, my, always my, my, my first choice. But, um, one of the things in Opal's story is that she gets to be seen and learns to be seen, and and uh, and I, I'm not sure if um, I'm not sure if if I want to be invisible anymore. I don't know. I was very shy as a kid, which is why I think I always wanted to, to be invisible, you know. But I don't know. I'm not really sure. Michelle, do you have a superpower that you would like to be? I always feel like the one that I choose is lame but it is what i would choose i would probably choose healing power oh i like healing power that's a good one i think that says a lot about you though michelle <laughs> <laughs> i always think in my mind that like the 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 conclusion of having a healing power though is is like bad because everybody in the world is like you know coming to you and i'm not yeah. sure if that's uh the way things should work but I would yeah, still yeah. want to be able to do that. <laughs> I like that healing power. Yeah, people will be coming to you with the wart on their big toe. You know, can you take off my wart? You'd have to you'd have to set some good boundaries there. No wart taking off. Well, it's the whole like playing God thing. You know, there's like a whole. That's true. Story there of like. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Although I guess all superpowers is a bit like playing God. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. And Robert, what would yours be? Well, I think both of yours sound pretty good. I'm, I was just thinking about what a what a writerly superpower it would be to want to be invisible because then you could really eavesdrop on conversation, right. all sorts of character details gathered up. 
Um, I've always thought me, I guess. It as well would be my choice, but it would be just for me. Um, none of this, uh, <laughs> none of this sharing with others. Just, I'll be immortal. Uh, anytime something bad happens to me, Wolverine style, I'll come right back. It's no problem. Oh, I don't okay. have to worry anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you heal my wart? I so wish I could, but no. <laughs> I can heal my wart. I can only heal myself. Sorry. <laughs> Michelle, I'm, I'm, I want to go back and we're going to talk all about uh, American uh, horse tales, I promise. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about getting started in publishing because you said you were five years with HarperCollins uh, yeah, before yeah. you began working with your book publisher now. So how do you get uh, how do you get started in publishing? How do you break in? Well, um, basically, you give up your entire life and move to New York. <laughs> um, yeah, it was kind of a, a, a dream of mine to work in children's books, but for most of my uh, youth, I thought it was basically an impossible thing. Like, there's no, like, who actually does this? Certainly not me. Uh, so I had a, you know, I, I uh, after college, I had a very normal set, set of jobs, uh, marketing and such things, and I, but um, I did go to uh, get a master's degree in in children's literature, thinking maybe maybe I can do this. Um, so basically, I quit my very uh, stable job at like 26 years old and took my husband away from his very stable job uh, here in Maryland, and we moved to Brooklyn. And I took uh, two non-paid internships at Bloomsbury and Penguin and hoped for the best. <laughs> so uh, luckily it turned out uh, well and I got the job at HarperCollins within like two months after that and uh, worked my way up from the bottom. I mean, I, I only ever uh, in the five years was, you know, an assistant editor. Uh, at that point, I had my first child and um, I realized I wanted to to sort of do different things, and then the the uh, opportunity to work at this new company, uh, this book packaging company, came up, and it was just it was wonderful because they were like, "Hey, do you want to keep making children's books and do it from home?" Because <laughs> um, uh, they are uh, headquartered in in England, and they wanted to have some uh, American editors. So that's how that all started. And I've been doing that for part time for 10 years. So, um, it, you know, it was a really amazing experience because I got to work at a publisher and really see books from that perspective, which is very different um, than I think you see things as a writer. And then at the book packager that I work at now, you know, it's kind of like being a giant Borg writer <laughs> with lots of other people because, you know, we're not publishers. We do sell to publishers as well, um, but we work as a team. We work as a group like a hive mind and, and uh, you know, come up with all kinds of different um, ideas. And so it, that really has taught me how to make writing more of a, when I say a job, I feel like it makes it sound like it's boring, but it it, it made me be very disciplined and organized about writing stories in a way that I would never was before. Um, and it also broadened my horizons of all the different 
kinds of stories that I could write because I wasn't really sure for a long time what my voice was or what my genre was. And, you know, trying out so many different things all the time for work is is a really good way of seeing what you like. And um, so it's been a really interesting adventure. <laughs> I'll say that. Had you uh, always wanted to be an author or was it, I want to be an editor and then I can work on all the books. And then while you were doing it, we're like, ah, oh, I keep reading these books that other people wrote. Dad, get out of here. Let me write one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I always wanted to be an author. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I wanted to be, I, I turned my attention to pursuing editing because I thought I need a stable job that I can do all the time that, I like, and at the time I had been working in marketing, like I said, or you know, working at continuing education, and I was just like, I don't want to do this. And so I thought, you know, hey, I'll go and I'll be an editor. And that I think for a long time, through being an editor, I just kind of didn't believe that I could cut it as an as a writer. I just didn't think I had the. I, I always wanted to since I was a child, but at that point as an, an adult. I think I didn't have the confidence to think that I could do it. And it wasn't until a lot of these other experiences that I got to the point where I was like, I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> like, I can definitely do this. I've been doing it. So it was really all in my own head, you know. And I mean, honestly, the, the, the connections that I made everywhere that I worked and everywhere, that's what made everything possible. So. I, I'm I'm a firm believer in, you know, taking risks and following patterns. So like everything that I did was always something that at the time I thought was completely nuts. And then it always inevitably led to something else that was great. And uh, because I just jumped right in, you know, so. So, yeah, it was it's an interesting journey for sure. <laughs> So interesting that, uh, that you had the confidence, I assume because you just won the lottery, but you had the confidence to quit your job, get your convince your husband uh, to quit your job, which, which lets me know that if you decide to be in sales, watch out. <laughs> You're obviously very convincing. Uh, and, and, and you moved to New York without, without a job that you, you have. Just to yeah. get it and get in the market with the confidence that somehow you're going to make that happen and yet still lacking the confidence that you could be an author. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I, I tell it to my therapist all the time. What's, what's going on? <laughs> no, I think I think, you know, I really put the idea of, of being an author on an enormous pedestal. And I mean, I think I still do. I mean, I'm like amazed right now you know, that this is even happening. I, I really just had such immense respect for just it as a career and people who do it. And so it took me a long time to be able to, to, to get there, you know, and I think everything that happened along the way was so, was, you know, the education that I needed to be able to, to be able to, to, to do what I I've been doing. Had you always wanted to be an author or did you figure that out somewhere along the way? I was I was the same way. Um, I was nodding so much when Michelle was just saying all of that um, because I was exactly the same way. And 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 I was the same way in that I, you know, I, I wanted to write books, 
But I mean, and I talk about this when I do school visits with kids, like, you know, I would see the names on books and I'd be like, you know, oh, this must be, you know, some robot person or someone who lives in a cloud or lives in some kind of special place or has some kind of special power because it couldn't have been me. I couldn't be the same kind of person where I could have my name on a book. I didn't meet the first time. I think it's fantastic that they've got all of these author visits now for kids. Um, I grew up all over the world. I was born in South America. I grew up in England and we moved to Jamaica when I was 10 and, and Cayman Islands when I was 12. So I was kind of all over the place. And especially, you know, when I was the age that I really was kind of figuring out that, you know, this is really what I wanted to do and dreaming about my future. I was in a small Caribbean island and definitely didn't meet any, you know, authors or have any idea that this could ever be on, you know, on uh, something that that I could do on, on my horizon. But when I went to college and and the same thing, Michelle, when you were talking about doing something practical, you know, I wanted to, I, and at that point, actually, I kind of wanted to act. I, I basically wanted to do anything with story, yeah. you know? I didn't, it, I wanted to write and I wanted to act. I just wanted to, to, um, to do things with stories. Stories were where it was at for me. And um, so when I went to college, my, my parents, to their absolute wisdom, suggested that I do a degree in journalism instead of um, you know theater and I ended up doing a double degree two degrees um, one in two bachelors one in in mass communications journalism and one in theater only because I had so <laughs> many electives no way. I had a double major in theater and English really <laughs> wow Seriously. <laughs> so see it's like we're twins we're just I, twins. I know this is all <laughs> isn't it <laughs> that's right so so yeah so I did that degree and that was my job like I was working actually in a newspaper before I started college in Cayman in the Caymanian Compass they helped to sponsor me in college which was amazing a great opportunity and so then, um, then after that, I stayed in journalism. But when I went to college, and funnily enough, not in my theater degree, but in my journalism degree, one of my journalism professors, Rick Wilbur, who is actually in my acknowledgments for The Boy, the Boat, and the Beast, because he encouraged me a lot, and I just got his latest book. He was the first author I had ever met. And he wrote, he writes, still writes sci-fi books. And he had written some sci-fi books. And I told him that I wanted to be an author one day. And he goes, oh, I'm an author. And and his he actually shared a literary agent with Orson Scott Card. And we had to write, a, we had to interview someone. And I asked, I said that I would like to interview Orson Scott Card because I'm a huge Ender's Game fan. And he got me this interview with Orson Scott Card when I was in college. and. That started to make me think that if my college professor could be an author, then maybe, possibly, I could. Um, but even then, I was thinking that I had to be an author in adult books, even though I wanted to write, you know, kids' books. And then I ended up, you know, had this career in journalism, and I ended up kind of just because of the way the jobs were available, I ended up shuffling more into editing. 
we went to my husband and I went to LA. He does visual effects. So when we were we were living in LA for him doing visual effects, and I was working with a um a sister publication to Variety, which did which um was for home entertainment called Video Business. So I was working there. But in my spare time, I figured when in Rome, I'm in LA, I should be focusing on writing screenplays. So the whole time that we lived in LA, I wrote screenplays. I wrote, I think I ended up writing about six of them. By the time I'd written the sixth one, I um, I was, the protagonists were getting, you know, younger and younger. And I was realizing more that I wanted to write children's stories. And the the final, uh, the final one I read, there was a, a book called Story by um, Robert McKee. That's really good. You got it? It's, oh, there it is. Up there it's on the so show. Good. It's so good, isn't it, Rob? I love that book. It's so good. So in that book, he talks about writing a treatment. And there's an exercise that you can do. And I'm all up for, you know, I'll try anything. If it, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, you know, I'll, I, I'll give it a try. So he talked about writing a treatment for a screenplay and writing no dialogue, just the entire story out. So this is like, I think the sixth screenplay that I was working on. I wrote this big treatment for this story and it was middle grade. I didn't really know what middle grade was at that time, but the story was middle grade. And I wrote all of this out. It was like 30 pages, this entire story. And when I got time to actually turn it into a, a screenplay like that, that, you know, Robert McKee had talked about, I realized that I had more fun writing that treatment than I had writing the screenplays. And I was finally getting to the point where I was figuring out how to write screenplays because it's a very different kind of you know, technique. And, um, but I realized that I, I really just wanted to write novels because writing the treatment, that's pretty much what I was doing. I mean, it's a very short novel, 30 pages, but that's what I was doing. So that ended up becoming the first novel that I wrote and, um, and it almost got an agent, it was, it was quite close, but I had a lot of learning to do. By the time I actually signed with my agent with the boy, the, the book that became The Boy, the Boat and the Beast, I had then, The Boy, the Boat and the Beast was the third novel I wrote, but by the time I signed with my agent, I had written, I had written six novels and I would, I would write a novel, revise it, get it as far as I could, then I would write another novel, learn from that, go back to The Boy, the Boat and the Beast, revise it more and just kept doing that. And then finally, you know, I finally was in a, a good enough place where I am um, signed with my agent and then and then it sold to Simon and Schuster. But yeah, so I, I, I but I was the same way, you know, as, as Michelle, I never really thought that I would actually get there. I used to go around calling The Boy, The Boat and The Beast my weird little book. And when it finally sold, the art director at Simon Schuster, Laurent Lynn, who I'd known previously through the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, he's like, Sam, you got to stop calling it that. But it kind of was my weird little book. And, you know, yeah. Now, now three books out. So it's still really surreal to me, but pretty amazing. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing industry. And I, I mentor writers now and I always tell them, you know, if I can do this, you can do this. It's, it's not easy. It's hard work. It's, you know, a lot of work to get that 
to, to really understand how stories work. That was, I think, one of the biggest learning curves. But everything that I did, all the journalism, I'm, I'm, Michelle, it's probably the same for you, like that journalism part and learning screenplays, all of that helped me to become the novelist that I am today, you know? You have said the magic word for me. If I uh, were to swear allegiance to a religious text, which to date I've decided not to, but if I were, it would be Story by Robert McKee. I teach it in every uh, fiction workshop. I, 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 I hit my four students over the head with a lot of his sayings, like just internalize this and you'll figure out the rest. Just first McKee, then everything else is going to be fine. I tell them it's like uh, going to the rainforest and taking ayahuasca, but you can do it in your home with your Kindle or on an audiobook, and it will open up an entire world for you for you to see once once you get there. Yeah. And then uh, Michelle, so you're you're editing. When do is it first you ghostwrite and then you start writing your own projects, or when do you make that leap from I will I'll be able to edit, I'll be able to be in publishing, but I could never possibly write anything. To now you've you've got two books coming out this year and many more to follow. Um. Well, it was, uh, like I said, you know, through uh, these connections that I made, um, someone that I work with had a uh, connection with this uh, series herself of the series that I cannot name. Uh, very long running middle grade uh, famous mystery series. Um, and so I just kind of I knew about this. And one day I was just like, hey, can you put me in touch? with the editor of the series um, because I knew that uh, sometimes they had multiple writers on the series and she said sure and um, that was it I basically I, I auditioned for the series and once you're in you're in <laughs> so I uh, you know the crazy thing is you know before that I had I had tried to write other books for myself you know I had tried to write um, uh, a YA novel. I tried to write a middle grade novel. I did have an agent by then, um, but nothing uh, made it. Nothing sold. It just, and I really, that it, it was discouraging. And I just felt like maybe this is, maybe I should just stick to what I'm doing. I'm editing. Um, and then, you know, when I found out about this connection she had, I just thought, well, this is different, right? This is something where I know what I'd be doing and it's a sure thing. And, you know, by then I had a small child and, uh, you know, I couldn't really do anything that wasn't a sure thing. And so I thought, okay, well, I could do this. And so the audition and the resulting novel was the first thing that I had ever finished. Novel length, it was the first thing I had ever finished was the first thing that I had ever published. So that was pretty wild. Um, that and, is. And uh, after that, it sort of broke a barrier, I think, in my mind. Where, you know, I had these these thoughts about what I was, what what I could and could not do. And at that point, I could not finish anything. And then I finished this thing because, you know, you have a deadline. <laughs> And a contract you have to and that is you know what I found is the most beautiful thing is just you have to do this you have no choice go ahead and I did and then I finished the one and I thought wow okay I can finish something 
I don't know if I can do it again though. And then I did it again. <laughs> and then I did it three more times. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and then, so then the, the, the idea was, well, I can't, I can't do something that is going to get my name on it because then it's a whole other thing. Then it's like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get into that? You know? And then my agent brought up within a month of each other, two projects, this one and the other one from two different series that wanted me to, you know, unlike the ghost written, the ghost writing series, which is a very discreet world with very discreet characters, everything already sort of, you know, set, you, you create the story of your own, but you're within an existing world. Unlike that, both of these series were, you know, this series, American Horse Tales, was basically, hey, do you want to write a book about a girl and a horse? Literally, whatever you want. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. So, you know, the other one was a little bit more, you know, they, they wanted me to write about this particular real event uh, that Martha Gellhorn uh, went through in World War II on D-Day. So that was more specific. But again, like they gave me like suddenly the room I was in was a lot bigger. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like this is this is scarier. I've not done something like this before. I don't have the safety boundaries that I was used to. But I was like, yeah, sure. I'll write two books within a year during a pandemic. <laughs> so um, I did that. And I loved it so much. And unlike the mystery series, which I had been working on, um, you know, the years before, both of these books were historical. And I was like, I don't write historical, but I mean, I will. So, and then, I mean, it was amazing because I loved it so much. I just loved all of the research. I loved the idea of making this what I think that so many people and children feel is just this dry, like you think of history, a lot of people I think think, oh, it's boring. It's boring, it's facts and figures and names and like, you know, pop quiz from high school that nobody wants to take, you know? And I just found it as soon as I started looking into it, it's just amazing and fascinating and so instructive about everything that's going on right now. And so translating all of that into something that would be really, uh, you know, interesting and adventurous for kids was an awesome challenge that I enjoyed more than anything I had done before. And so, you know, it, it just it just opened my mind. And now that these are done, I'm really starting to challenge this idea of like, Maybe I can just do this on my own now. Like maybe I don't need to wait for somebody to come over and be like, hey, do you want to do this? Maybe I should, you know, and, and the great thing is my next project, which I've just started working on, is going to be a combination of these two things that I've realized that I love, mystery and history. So <laughs> um, it's just, you know, like I, I've really enjoyed just being sort of open to what happens because that's what's brought me the most amazing things. It's just somebody comes and says, hey, here's this random opportunity that you've never done before. Do you want to try it? I'm like, yeah, okay. And, 
it's been great. I mean, I think that being open to things just brings the the most incredible opportunities into your life. So it's that that's 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 where I am right now. <laughs> uh, you have a ghost written book on the shelf. You go to the bookstore and you take your friend and you're like, look, my book is on the shelf. Oh, which one? I can't say, but just <laughs> know that it's here and it's well, amazing. I mean, I tell people in in you know person that what I what I write, but I can't uh, say it in a public forum. <laughs> so it's it's a legacy thing. <laughs> so I mean, I feel like anybody who really wanted to think about all the things I've been saying really hard, probably figure it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's been hard. The, the ghostwriting has been hard because of course, you know, everybody wants their name on the book. It's, you know, it, you can't talk about it. Then it, it almost feels like, man, <laughs> but because of the series and what it is, I, I do have a certain level of pride about doing it because it's uh it's a historically important series to a lot of people and it's it was a, amazing to to be a part of that so sorry to be so opaque but no i've already figured <laughs> we'll out what probably you're arrest me or something that makes sense yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i so both of you have this amazing idea at the same time to write about a, a girl and her horse or no it doesn't quite work that way um, Samantha, how uh, did you know each other before before you both got drafted to be the the rookies on the lineup here? No, no, not at all. I actually messaged um, Michelle on on Facebook, and and I'm pretty sure that's how it was. I think I saw your name, and 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 I I was trying to I always like to reach out to the people that I'm working with and and talk and see if we could do some you know stuff together and and we just hit it off it's just been been great but yeah i didn't know um and and the series was up, up in the air like they didn't know how many you know first they were going to do four books um in the first run and then they were going to do just two and it was kind of constantly changing um but but penguin was the ones who came up with the american horse tales the the idea and I had the exact same um, guidelines as Michelle. You know, my my agent came to me and said, "Hey, there's an opportunity. Do you want to do you want to pitch for uh, to write a, a book for American Horse Tales?" And you know, and I was like, "What's it about? A girl and a horse?" I'm like, <laughs> okay, and that's it. You can do whatever. <laughs> yeah, you can do whatever you want. A girl and a horse. And they did actually give some examples, like you know, they said it could be a girl, you know, with um, you know, and one of the examples was actually a girl um, and a horse in movies. And because I had worked with video business, I'd been on the set with um, video, you know, a lot of movies and and stuff, you know, when we were in L.A. So I thought, well, maybe I can try that because at least I know that industry, you know, pretty well. So um, so I pitched them the idea of Juniper and Abel who uh and juniper's dad is the horse trainer for movies and abel is their brand new horse and you know their youngest horse and abel is kind of juniper's horse and they train together and he gets his first audition and it's for her very very favorite um, um tv show 
and she's just so desperate for him to get the role that she skips school, sneaks into the trailer, goes to the audition, and then accidentally gets herself hired as well, only to discover that being in a TV show is quite a bit more difficult than she had originally thought. But it was it was a lot of fun doing it. And and then same with Michelle, you know, they they liked the pitch. We, we started out with just a full um, synopsis, full outline of the whole book and the first three chapters. And and it kind of just flew out of me, even though this is my first contemporary novel, the first one, you know, like you said about, you know, earlier on, Rob, about writing about magical stuff and then writing something with absolutely no magic. This is the first novel that I've written with absolutely no magic. And um, and and it's not something that I ever thought would come naturally to me because I'm much more of a fantastical kind of person in my thinking. But it was a lot of fun to to do that. It I also have always felt a little intimidated about writing contemporary because I didn't grow up in the US and I grew up, you know, I mean, I was changing schools constantly when I was a kid, not only changing schools and changing towns, but changing countries. So it was, you know, it was a, it was difficult to, um, it's difficult for me to, to make sure that I have an authentic kind of school experience for middle grade. But in this version, in this book, I didn't have to worry about that because it was it was a movie setting and um, it was something that that I had experienced and I knew so I could write about it a lot easier. The day that I write something set in an American school, I think I'll have to get expert readers to help me with that one, <laughs> with that research. <laughs> oh, that's where all the other books are set. No, continue to, to go with the, the, fanta the fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you move through so many places as a child, does that uh, help you later with characterization? And I'm assuming that every time you moved to a new school, you had an opportunity to reinvent yourself. So maybe that helps you uh, create a character uh, of yourself as, as well. I don't know if that would be sort of an advantage that, that comes to your writing. I don't know. That's a really good question. I haven't, I haven't been asked that before. That's a really good question. I'm not sure. Um, I... I, I will say I was really, really super shy as a kid, and I, I didn't, I didn't really make friends easily just because, you know, I, I kind of wanted to just be invisible and somewhere in the background. That was my superpower, you know. I could just blend in, and everyone could ignore me, and then that would be the best thing. But um, which is funny for someone who later on wanted to be an actress, but. Um, but, but the reason why I wanted to be an actress was because then I could become other people. And, and I actually gained a lot of confidence and um, through a, um, um, what do they call this? This series of books, and I'm blanking on the name, Sweethearts, um, not American Sweethearts. Oh, Sweet Valley High. Sweet Valley High. Yes, there was a Sweet Valley High book that I read as a kid that I loved. And it talked about, there was one of the characters, um, she was very shy. And so she would, to gain confidence, she would basically kind of, she, 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 was a, she liked acting. So she created a version of herself who was very confident. So when I was growing up, that's what I did. And I would 
literally anytime anything was really difficult for me, I would think about the character, the confident version of me. I would stand up straight, put my shoulders back and head high and be like, all right, now I'm that character. And with that moving in, stepping into that role, it was much easier to be a more confident version of myself. And um, so, so I don't know, I, I guess in a, in a sense, I moving around did help me learn about character or at least different versions of myself. Um, it did it, it did teach me one thing that 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 I've told uh, you know a number of people though that people really deep down are all the same. We we like to think that we are so different from people in other countries, and culturally, sure there are cultural differences, but as human beings around the world. People want to, they want to feel safe. They want to feel loved. They want to feel heard. That's pretty much it. Deep down, we are all very much the same. And how we deal with those needs and wants is different. And like I said, the cultural things are different. But living in all those different countries, it did help me kind of see the similarities in in people and, um, and the differences too, if that makes sense. It does. Although I wonder um, if you had wanted to be an actress when you're spending time on, on the Hollywood sets as a reporter um, and you're watching, I don't know if you were there when Christian Bale was screaming and throwing lights or- No, <laughs> I wasn't there then, I heard about it then. If you're seeing <laughs> a, enough of that world that that kind of turns you off and you say, no, I'm not interested, or did it make you more interested? No, it, it definitely made me not so interested. And I did I did theater in college, but even in college, I, I really, I, I acted really much more when I was in high school. When I was in college, I acted. I even got my first professional role when I was in Tampa at a, in a play in Tampa, and it was a lot of fun. Um, this was because I went to college in Florida, but um, but ultimately, I found that even while I was in college, I was I was leaning more toward the writing to writing plays. But I didn't really know that I could, you know, make any money whatsoever as a playwright. And and I had just kind of shut off that side of my brain like, oh, you, you can't you can't make any money doing that. How do you even how does it even work? I didn't know. Funnily enough, now one of my good friends in, in Austin who's also, he's a YA author and he's a playwright. <laughs> so I know now that I was very stupid and I could have done, you know, could definitely have done that if I had, you know, done just a little bit of research into it. But, um, but yeah, I, I really discovered that the writing side was, was much more interesting for me. And I think part of it is because when you're writing, especially when you're writing novels, you get to be the actor. For every part, you get to be the director, the lighting designer, the prop master, the art director. You get to do it all. You get to create the weather if you want, and um, and that that is that that's much more more fun, I think, you know, than just doing just doing the acting. Maybe it's a control part of me. I don't know, but <laughs> I get a lot better to be able to do it all, you know. 
Well, the nice thing I would think about a film is once you film the thing, it is the thing that you filmed. Everybody can see it objectively, whereas with a book, a book, of course, only works if the reader also participates. And so you can be very clearly thinking at them that this character should obviously be cast as James Earl Jones. And they can think, nope, it's going to be Morgan Freeman and I'm the reading and that's how it's going to be. And also, you're not the lighting director. I am. And it's way brighter with lens flares everywhere than you would have thought. And that's just how it's going to (laughs) be. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. When I speak to book clubs, I always say that to them. I'm like, you know, books are only as good as you, as your imagination. You know, once it's published, it's no longer my book. It's your book. You need to read it. And when you read it, it'll come alive in your mind. You know, I can only put the words on paper. You have to make it come alive. You know, and I think that's really true. And it's true that people will see it in very different ways. I wish there was a way to orchestrate a soundtrack to go with the book so you would know when the reader got to a certain part and then you could you could play whatever music you wanted them to hear ah maybe maybe a future innovation yes michelle i want to hear how you approach that the same project so if i've got this right it's at twenty thousand words any time in history anything you want to do but it's girl and her horse can you come back and say okay well i'll do an alternate history of the donner party and just when they're getting ready to eat each other this girl shows up with her horse and says nope my horse is willing to sacrifice itself it's gonna be okay or are there, are there some limitations i'm available should anyone be listening i'm happy to happy to write this story for your American- <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean that sounds like an awesome but very very different series <laughs> You could pitch, you know, zombie American horse, horse American horse horror tales, maybe or <laughs> horror horse tales. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the limitations weren't so much more than what you've said, uh, other than you know they didn't really want posh, you know, horse dressage stories. You know, they wanted it to be a little bit more down to earth. Um, they particularly wanted things that were. Um, yeah, like just just different stories than I think what you would think of as a traditional girl horse story of, of you know, that kind of writing. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why I ended up um, thinking about the Dust Bowl. Um, for some reason, I think I was just walking around my house. I, I wanted it to be historical. I knew that. Um, and I just, my eyes landed on my old uh, copy of The Grapes of Wrath. And it was a story that I hadn't really read since high school or college, but it, it really stuck with me all of that time, particularly because it was a time in history that I feel like isn't written about a lot, especially not for children. Um, and the it was just a very evocative um environment and <laughs> you know I, I i just came up with this idea about uh a girl jenny and uh, her horse and and living as farmers in oklahoma um in the same kind of environment during the same time period as the grapes of wrath and uh, knowing that these books would be written in first person um i thought well it would certainly be a challenge to write this book and have some of that dialect in there, but only enough 
so that it would still be very, very clear to the reader. Because, you know, you do too much dialect and then it becomes a little bit difficult for a middle grade reader to comprehend. And so, and also, how do you write about the Great Depression and have it be fun? <laughs> so, 20,000 words while you also have to do a full plot about a girl and her horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's reasonable, right? <laughs> I, I like a challenge, I guess. Um, but I, I just got sort of uh, really into this idea once I had thought of it. And um, also one of our editors, you know, I think this was part of it, partly it, that one of the editors said specifically that he was from Oklahoma. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting like detail to include about yourself. Like, I don't know anybody from Oklahoma. And um, and so that it all it all sort of unfolded. And um, it was really, I, I started doing the research. I watched um, a lot of Ken Burns documentaries. Um, he has an entire like six hour documentary just about the Dust Bowl, which is unbelievable to watch. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think that this happened in this country, like, you know, within our, our you know, grandparents' time. And I, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what, what these people went through. And so, you know, as soon as I had started all the research and started thinking about the development of the story was when the pandemic began. And so suddenly I, I, you know, I didn't, I had made this decision before the pandemic began. And so I was working on it. And then this whole thing descended on all of us. And it was just suddenly like really poignant to be learning about this other, uh, this other time in our country's history where it was just an unbelievable crisis not just the Dust Bowl, but of course the Great Depression, everything that came with it. And suddenly we were, I'm writing this book in the midst of this unprecedented crisis and, you know, of people just losing their jobs and being afraid and, and, and having to come together and think like, how are we going to do, how are we going to deal with this? And, you know, learning about that time and how truly horrendous it was, the things that they went through, and to know what they did to not only survive it, but to revolutionize, you know, in the, in the case of the Dust Bowl, farming, to make the, that part of the country just the most fruitful, prolific place as it is today. And I mean, and people all had to work together to make that happen. And it took a long time and it took a lot of sacrifice and it was just, it was just inspiring and it was something that I didn't even realize how much I needed going through that time myself, you know, and just seeing everything unfolding around me. And so it, it took on another level of meaning because of what happened. And, you know, ultimately the, the story is about hope. And I, I, you know, I thought to myself as I was coming up with the plot, I was like, how am I going to make this have a happy ending? Because it's, you know, it's it. the book takes place in a very short amount of time. It's in 1936. They don't get out of this until a couple years later, where things really start to turn around, get better for those farmers. So I was like, man, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? I don't want to, it has to, I wanted it to be as historically accurate as I could make it. 
Um, and so, you know, maybe this is a little spoilery, but like what, what ultimately it became was that, you know, at the end, it's not that everything is better. It's not that everything is fixed. It's that there's this greater understanding and appreciation of the people within her family. And just this little tidbit of hope that here's something that we can all start to do to start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it wasn't an easy fix. And I mean, it, it, it none of it was, but it was just that, you know, that idea that like, hey, we're all in this together and, you know, here's something that we can all do to start to get out of this. And that sometimes that little bit, that little bit is all you need to keep going. You know, it's like the guy on the side of a cliff. I don't know if you've seen that movie about the guy who free climbed that gigantic. Yes. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. It's unbelievable. You know, but like I, I remember watching him scale this like literal just wall. <laughs> and I mean, you'd see he'd like he'd like crook his finger over barely this tiny crack. And that would be enough to lift himself up to the next handhold. And I mean, that's it's very symbolic to me of just like how much people need to go on. It's not a lot. You know, you don't have to give people everything to fix their problems, but you just need a little bit, just a little bit yeah. and you can keep going. And so it, it was just, it was a, a really great experience, especially for, you know, the book that's the first book with my name on it. It was just very meaningful. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> Does that, and this is a question for both of you, but I'll start with you, Michelle. Um, during all conversations sooner or later become a little bit about the pandemic. Um, yeah. When you're going through this pandemic, does having this book uh, to focus on, having this uh, history, this research to do about the Dust Bowl, does that help to put things in perspective and focus on the history that you know eventually comes out okay uh, and maybe gives you hope that, that you're going to, to come out okay? Or, or does that take the place of are you able to shut off the news completely go nope la 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 i can't hear you i'm focusing strictly on on, on my story uh no i think the, the the first one you know i think you know it it, it has really given me a, a a really helpful perspective on this country's history you know and and that we've been through a lot and we are continuing to go through a lot. And I mean, we are always going through a lot. And people's memories, I think, are are quite short. And uh, when you start to look back in this way, and you know, this kind of opened up, you know, a, a, a huge avenue for me of just finding out about all history. You know, this book took place, takes place in 1936. My Martha Gellhorn book takes place in 1944. And so, I ended up doing research on really that entire era, that whole like span of, you know, I, I learned about the Roosevelt's because I wanted to know about how we got to that point, you know, and so I, I learned a lot about the, the, the first half of the, the 20th century. And I mean, we've, <laughs> I mean, this is an unprecedented situation, but we've survived 
everything and thrived. And um, I just think that's how history works. I think that people are always going through something difficult and people are always finding ways to become better and to become, uh, you know, uh, not to be a corny, but a more perfect union. I mean, that is the point of democracy and of community and, you know, that it's never going to be perfect and there's always going to be disasters. Um, but people are, people are amazing. You know, that's basically what it taught me is that people are amazing and also that people are awful. <laughs> they will all be awful as well. <laughs> and, you know, we think that people are more awful today, but I think people are always basically <laughs> a little bit awful. Throughout history, sure. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's really eye-opening. And I, I really, like, the one thing that I, I really look forward to of um, you know, school visits and, and more talks. It's just talking about history in a way that's like, you know, reflective on where we are and just, and, and optimistic. You know, I think there's so much, I mean, and it's not that the negativity isn't, uh, you know, it, it is it is really, it's really hard right now. But I think it's really important for everybody's sake, for all of us to be to be strong and to be optimistic and to, you know, reach out to each other in reality <laughs> and not only just on Facebook. <laughs> so yeah, history, everybody should try it. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> it was a podcast, I listened to why everybody listens to it. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. If you haven't listened to it, you're missing out. Uh, he did an episode specifically about the Colosseum and the executioners outside the Colosseum, which at one point they had what was basically the equivalent of a, a stand-up comic open mic night, but for executioners. So if you were a prisoner, somebody was coming up and taking requests from the crowd and learning their craft live in action. And I thought, you know what, whatever really bad thing is happening today, it's not that bad. I'm not going <laughs> to the arena and waiting for the open mic night executioner to take requests from the crowd. It, oh it could God. be wow. worse. <laughs> now that I know that that was also an existence on uh, on this planet that was possible, this is fine. It's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> you know what else is great? Drunk history. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Have you watched that? Oh, oh my yeah. God. It is so funny. <laughs> and it's so, it's also, it. It, it's, it's, it's exactly what you'd think. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they tell some really amazing stories too. And they're all American stories, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. All the different cities. They talk about stories from every different city and it's 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 a funny show. Very cool concept. Uh, Michelle, what uh, Michelle Samantha, uh, what has uh, your uh, what was your pandemic experience watching the world go a little nuts uh, while maybe a lot nuts in some cases uh, while working uh, on Hollywood and, and and focusing on your story? Were you able to keep your nose to the grindstone or did you have days where it's just, OK, I guess I'm just scrolling the news today and that's that's what's going to happen all day today? No, it was for me, it was uh, when you were when you were um, asking Michelle and you gave two different scenarios. Mine was the latter one in that one. In that case, it's one one case where Michelle and I had kind of differing experiences, similar but differing. 
because I had, um, I was basically on deadline, going back to back deadlines for Arrow to Hollywood. And then I also sold the Gemstone Dragons last year. So I was also working on those books at the same time. So I was I was going just back to back from one book to the next book. And then, you know, when I was finished a revision for Arrow, I'd get in notes for um, Hollywood and then I do a revision of Hollywood and then I'd be working on Gemstone Dragons and then I'd get that out of the door and then I would have revisions back for Arrow. And and it was it it was um, it was amazing and interesting and exhausting. But for me personally, I, I must admit, and I, I, I you know kind of selfishly, I feel very lucky in that I suppose because I was able to put away a lot of stuff. I mean, there was not only the pandemic, there was the election and, and everything. There was a lot going on last year that was really, really hard. And I got very stressed out about all of that, but I was able to, I mean, I, I, most of the time I didn't have time to look at the news. I, I would be able to see little snippets later on in the evening and just, you know, I, I had to just put it all aside because I had to concentrate on deadlines, which is probably a very good thing for me because I tend to take on too much. And um, so I think for my sanity, I think it was very lucky that that I had all of these projects that I was working on at the same time during, you know, during the pandemic. And my husband, um, pretty early on, you know, his company, they went all home. So he's been working from home. He's upstairs in his office right now. So he was working from home the whole time too, which was, you know, a, a bit different too, having him in the house all the time, but that was fun too. He could bring me lunch every so often and get me off my computer and say, you need to take a lunch. And I'm like, I never take lunch. <laughs> you need to take lunch. Um, so yeah, so, so the, the pandemic was a, bit, was a bit different. I think part of the biggest thing for me with the pandemic other than just the reality of everything that was going on was, um, you know, worrying about the rest of my family because we've got, you know, I've got family all over the world. My parents are in the Cayman Islands. I wasn't sure. And the, the island was completely closed down. You know, the borders were closed. Um, so I wasn't sure how all that was going to work out. They've, they, they handled, the Cayman government handled it really, really well. And so they're, you know, they're all safe, but, uh, but yeah, that was that I think was the biggest one of the biggest stresses, you know. So it was a busy time. Well, thankfully that's all been resolved now and water under the bridge and never <laughs> 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 Oh gone. Oh gone. <laughs> I will say that 2020 kind of maxed out my capacity for shock and anger and, and everything else that could possibly be there and seriously. I, I, I have not cut off the news completely, but after the insurrection failed, I said, well, I worried for, for so long, rightfully so. It, it was all quite horrifying, but had did all of my worrying make a difference? And I think that from an anxiety perspective, I was kind of like wearing my lucky pants and hoping that was going to help the team win. But 
that the lucky pants are not a factor here. So <laughs> reading the news every day and and having a, you know a mini miniature heart attack is not going to impact the outcome either way. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's it's given me a sense of perspective that hopefully is going to follow me for the rest of my life because unfortunately I don't think the news is going to stop being so interesting, uh, at least for a while. Uh, and as it is, I would like to be able to just read the facts and say, oh, well, that is the thing that's happened. Is that something I can impact directly? And if the answer is no, well, let me set that aside and focus on the on the things that I can. Now, that is a very lofty ideal, and I hope that I'm able to continue to live up to it. But if not, you do it, esteemed audience. And, and that way, at least someone will be doing it. And um, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about being the regional advisor for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators there in Austin. What is that role like and what does that bring to your writing and publishing career? That was another thing, actually, I forgot to mention. That was another thing that I was dealing with during the pandemic because, of course, we had to switch everything to online. And so as well as the deadlines, I was also dealing with that. And and we had um, we have monthly meetings that we meet at the um, the book people are our biggest local independent bookstore. We have speakers come. Um, and I remember when everything kind of hit Austin, and I think this was in March, we had Chris Barton was our speaker for that meeting. And I emailed him like a few days before and we were just starting to get a lot of cases in Austin. And I said, I'm starting to think maybe we need to go on, you know, online. What do you think? So we had to make this kind of split decision days before the event that we were moving it online just to protect everyone. So we did that. But then we had a conference in um, on May 1st of that year. So two months later, so I had, as well as all these deadlines, I had to move an entire conference, you know, well, me and my team had to move an entire conference online for, you know, close to 200 attendees and um, 20 something faculty members, which was interesting. But, um, but it all worked out. It was a beautifully amazing weekend. Um, just sitting at a computer, but it was the most that I'd seen anyone for a really long time and it was a lot of fun to do. Um, but to answer your question, doing this is something that I never really thought I would be able to do because again, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I had had a, a great deal of lack of self-esteem and, um, and, you know, kind of belief in myself and insecurities. Um, and a friend of mine, an author, Bethany Hegedus, had kind of encouraged me and said, you'd be really good at this. And so then I got the opportunity to do it. And I and I'm so glad that that I did. I've now been the regional advisor of this Austin chapter for this is my eighth year, I think. And it's been an amazing experience. The, the people that I've met through it have been fantastic. I was able to build up a much bigger community um, through through this, not just within Austin, but also um, all over the world because I've been in connection with RAs and other volunteers, you know, illustrator coordinators, assistant regional advisors for, you know, at chapters all over America, but also all over the world. 
and um, and we we have a listserv, so we keep in touch. The listserv is really for business, for SVRI business. But you know, knowing that you know we get advice from each other, and and um, and then I would see them at conferences. So I gained all of these additional friends. And prior to being the RA, I was not published, and um, but I didn't even have an agent. And I remember my first conference that I put on. I all of these, you know, a bunch of people were, you know, making really good contacts with agents and with editors as well. Some of my published friends were making really good contacts with editors, things that could potentially happen. And and I was thinking, you know, none of these people are really going to be right for my books. And so I was thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to make as good contacts in this, but that's OK. I'm helping them. I'm learning a lot. I'm meeting people. It'll be great. And then it actually turned out um, that a friend of mine, um, another author, Donna Janelle Bowman, was talking to an agent at the conference. And she, my friend Donna, basically kind of pitched my book, The, the Boy, the Boat and the Beast, to this agent. And the agent then asked me and said, everyone else is pitching me their book except for you, but I hear it's really great. Why aren't you pitching it? And in my head, I was thinking, well, you know, knowing kind of the books that she represents, I, you know, I didn't think that she would really be interested in, in my kind of writing. She, she had amazing clients, but they were very different. So I thought, you know, she's, I'd be wasting my time sending it to her. And I didn't tell her that at the time. I was just like, oh, you know, I, I, I'd love to send you my stuff. So she said, send it. I'd love to read it. Sure enough, three months later, um, she sent me a rejection letter. And I was like, well, there you go. By this time, I'd already had, you know, hundreds of rejections. Well, not hundreds. I had like over 100 by the time I signed with, with my agent. So I'd had like plenty of rejections by then, probably over 100. And but the, the interesting thing was she said, these are ready to go. They're just not right for me. Um, but you should send them to these two other people. And um, I promptly did not follow her advice <laughs> because I was busy writing another book that I was planning to self-publish and a YA book. And um, so then a few months later, a few months went by and then I got an email where she was copying me on a conversation that she'd been having with these two other agents about me, which was amazing. And they both wanted to read my books, so I sent it to them. And one of them, Rachel Orr with Prospect, was the was um, was the agent who signed me. And so you know, I got my agent through Liza Paulson Vogues, who who had recommended me and she met me, you know, through a conference that I had put on and hired, you know, asked her to come and be, you know, part of this, uh, this conference. So, you know, would she have done that if I wasn't the RA? Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that thanks to, you know, SCBWI, I've, I mean, I've learned so much through the courses and everything that 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 they put on through the courses that I've organized and been able to sit in on. And I don't have a master's degree, you know, in, in creative writing. So um, 
I basically kind of learned through SCPWI workshops. And, um, and yeah, I mean, all of those connections that I've made has been amazing. And Laurent Lynn, funnily enough, was the art director at the exact same conference. And we had kind of kept in touch after that conference. And because um, I had taken him, he couldn't, he didn't have a flight out. So I'd taken him on a little tour, driving tour around Austin. So um, when when I when my book sold to Simon and Schuster, and he's the art director for Simon Schuster, I really wanted to, you know, say to my editor, can I just tell my one friend at Simon and Schuster? But then he heard about it. I had told him about the book. We'd had coffee and I told him that I was working on the book, you know, way back when. And then he heard about it and and asked to write, asked to work on it. So he was then my my um, art director at Simon Schuster. I mean, the industry is a very small industry, really. You know, everyone knows everyone. People, you know, people meet and keep in touch, and you know, you you make all these connections. And SCBWI is has has been an amazing place for that. And being a volunteer there. I always recommend to people, you know, if you can volunteer, do it. If you have the time, try to do it, even if it's just a small job, because you'll make so many more connections. And I'm not just talking about business connections. As the RA, I was able to make those, and even as a volunteer, you can. But I'm also talking about just your community, you know, as a person who is pretty shy, usually, um, it helped me to be able to go to somewhere. I was volunteering for SBLRA long before I became the RA because I could go to an event and I could say, oh yeah, you know, I run one of the critique groups. And that helped me to have something to talk about other than, you know, feeling bad and getting that, are you published question, which I've always hated. People never ask somebody else, are you published? Ask them what they're working on. It's much more fun and, you know, so, so yeah, I highly recommend it. I think it's it's an amazing organization and everybody, the, the support and encouragement that, that you get from the people within it, the volunteers is, is amazing. It's been fun. Whatever it's worth, I think that eight years as a regional advisor to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators is at least the equivalent of a master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm watching our time and it's 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 flown by. Where did it go? Uh, and yet esteemed audience know, I, knows I must ask. So Michelle, I'm gonna start with you. Have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? Uh, let's see. Uh, see. I should be clear when I, when I ask a question like this, if you've seen Bigfoot, don't, don't, don't hold out on me. Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, all of it. <laughs> okay, well. Uh, seen, seen, no, uh, spoken to, uh, I believe yes. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I had one of my best friends, uh, lived in a house, literally a house on a hill in our neighborhood, which was a mostly newish neighborhood, except for her house, which was a holdover, I suppose, because it's like over probably now close to 200 years old or something like that. The house had a name, Rose Hill. And I spent a huge amount of my childhood on Rose Hill. And when we were kids and had sleepovers together, as all uh, young girls do, um, we would pull out the Ouija board 
and attempt to contact uh, the spirits living in the house and uh, had, I think, marginal success. Um, I think that uh, we uh, did speak to uh, a spirit who lived in the house uh, at some point in its long, long history. Her her uh, cellar was like a Civil War era cellar, and then they built the house on top. So we would go into the scary cellar with the Ouija board and speak to the, uh, I can't remember the name of the ghost at this point, so I apologize, but um, so yes, my answer is yes. <laughs> she's she's gonna the, the ghost's gonna haunt you now and be like, "Don't you forget my name?" <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe I just blocked it out. I'm not sure. <laughs> remember at one point that it became clear to you that oh no, this isn't just a spooky game I'm playing with my friends. We're actually talking to somebody here. I still do not know the answer to that question. I think you know, even today, I am uh, really fascinated by. Uh, all of that sort of occult, supernatural stuff. I find it really interesting um, because it's hard to disprove it. You can't prove it really, but you can't disprove it either. Um, so, so yeah, ghosts, great stuff. <laughs> the same question. I, I'm the same, similar answer actually. I think I didn't see a ghost but I think I was in the presence of a ghost one time um, before when I was um, it must have been about nine actually it was before we my parents and I moved to Jamaica my parents were looking we were living in England and um, my parents were looking at buying a very very old farmhouse on this farmland and it had been abandoned for years and they were looking at buying it and kind of doing it up and um, and so I went with them one day to look at this farmhouse and they're looking around at, you know, the structure and stuff. And they said, go, you know, go. And I'm an only child. So it was just, you know, me, the only child. And they're like, go look around, you know, go see what, you know, what do you think of the bedrooms and stuff? So I go upstairs and, and, and I'm not, I'm not the bravest person in the world. So I'm like crawling upstairs going, okay, this is super creepy. But there was nothing really there. The house was empty. Nobody had lived there in, in probably a hundred years. I mean, it was, it was a very, very old farmhouse in English countryside. And I go into this one room and I, I remember this so vividly because I like opened the door and this the only room I like pushed the door open and it was the only room that had any furniture in it and all it had was a rocking chair and it was rocking. Oh no, that's- I know, that's what I thought. That's and I ran all the way down and said, I don't like it here and I ran out to the car. <laughs> that was, that was nope. That's a big nope for me. Seriously? I know. So I think that I was in the presence of a ghost. Yeah, but I was too chicken to, <laughs> to actually stay long enough to see. I was just hightailed it out of there really fast. But I'm pretty sure. There were, I mean, there were no open windows. I mean, old houses can be drafty, but to push a rocking chair and it was the only piece of furniture in the entire house. I think it was a ghost. I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah, no, the wind powerful enough to move a rocking chair, you're going to notice and feel that. Right. That's what I think. And I couldn't feel anything. Oh, so, yeah. 
that's a situation in which a superpower of invisibility is not going to help out so much because the ghost is also invisible. Presumably, they're still going to be able to see you. So. <laughs> that's right. Maybe if you have the power of invisibility, though, maybe you can like get into their realm. Mm. Yeah. The, the idea of, of invisibility could go lots of ways. I was actually thinking about this a lot when I was writing Opal's story because that's her power. But... Um, I didn't get into the ghost realm, but but I was thinking like, well, is invisibility just you're invisible, but you're still there, you're still physical, or is invisibility that you're not even physical anymore? Like, you know, you can put your hand through things, and which is what Opal ends up being able to do. But in this case, like you just said, Rob, like, and, you know, maybe invisibility can send you to the ghost realm. Then you can actually see ghosts and hear ghosts. And that would, that would be a whole other idea. That could be a good book. Your next book. I, I, I know. I'm <laughs> reading my name and the acknowledgments. This is going to be okay. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking this idea. Fantastic. I, I so appreciate both of you making the time. Um, wonderful episode. Uh, I think esteemed audience uh, has, has enjoyed themselves hopefully as, as much as we have. Uh, my final question for you is always some variation of it. Michelle, I'll start with you. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your career uh, and give yourself or whenever in your career it would have been useful to give yourself some advice that would have made a difference and might make a difference for all everyone that's watching or listening to us now. What would you go back and tell yourself? Um, I would say be bold. <laughs> Simple answer. Uh, and where, remind esteemed audience, where can they go to find you online again? Uh, MichelleJCorpora.com. Uh, and Samantha, what would you go back and what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think I would tell myself to um, believe, stop worrying, but also, and I tell this to kids a lot, to not judge your work by a published book. Because, you know, when, when my books have sold, there have been many, many more revisions that have come after the book has sold. And it still took me a long time before I got to the point where I was writing work that would sell. It took me a long time and many books before I was writing work that would sell to editors. It was, you know, a high enough quality. But the um, even after it sold, there were still so many more revisions. And then you've got editors helping helping me. And then I've got copy editors and proofreaders who are helping to make it you know, the best book. I remember when I was starting out, I would write something and then I would think that I'd be like, okay, I think this is, this is doing pretty, I'm getting somewhere here. And then I'd go and read a published book and I would just, it would be so good. And I'd think I can never do that. But the point is that you can, and you can't judge your first draft or your second draft or even your third draft by that published book. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, esteemed audience, as always, for uh, interviews with um, 
uh, publishing professionals, authors, the entire back catalog of the show, everything that's good in this world. Go to middlegradeninja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you, Rob.